Hey, good morning, church. Good to see you all this morning. Uh, We're going to study God's Word together, so go ahead and open your Bible to the book of Psalms. Open up to Psalm 92, and that's where we're going to be looking at God's Word here this morning. Old Testament book of Psalms, Psalm 92. Reads this way. Man, I love the Psalms. Here we are again, Psalm 92. It is good to give thanks to the Lord, to sing praise to your name most high, to declare your faithful love in the morning and your faithfulness at night with a ten-stringed harp and the music of a lyre. For you have made me rejoice, Lord, by what you have done. I will shout for joy because of the works of your hands. How magnificent are your works, Lord. How profound your thoughts. A stupid person does not know. A fool does not understand this. Though the wicked sprout like grass and all evildoers flourish, they will be eternally destroyed. But you, Lord, are exalted forever. For indeed, Lord, your enemies, indeed your enemies will perish. All evildoers will be scattered. You have lifted up my horn like that of a wild ox. I have been anointed with the finest oil. My eyes look at my enemies. When evildoers rise against me, my ears hear them. The righteous thrive like a palm tree and grow like a cedar tree in Lebanon. Planted in the house of the Lord, they thrive in the courts of our God. They will still bear fruit in old age, healthy and green, to declare the Lord is just. He is my rock, and there is no unrighteousness in him. So the Bible always addresses people. The Bible always speaks to real needs. So you could ask this question, even as you go to just study any text of God's word that's on your lap on Tuesday morning, you could ask that passage as it were, God, who are you reaching towards in this passage? What condition of heart are you addressing in this passage? Because it's always personal. God's words are always personal to his covenant people in and through his words. So God, what season of life, what season of soul are you addressing? And I think God is speaking to three seasons of the soul that Christians can find ourselves in. Even though we've been made brand new, we can find ourselves in three seasons of soul that are addressed by this psalm. Joylessness, foolishness, and hopelessness. And I would imagine if we sat down and started telling stories, every Christian in this room could say, I've walked through maybe all of those. I'm familiar with all of those seasons of soul, joylessness, foolishness, and hopelessness. And Psalm 92 speaks a word of hope, and it says there's a way out. There's a way out, up and out, of joylessness and foolishness and hopelessness. It's not a quick fix. The way out is worship. It's a long way out, it's, it's a path, but the way out is worship. It's, it's been field tested. Again, not a quick fix, not a light switch that's instantly changed, but it's been field tested by the likes of Job, Moses, Hannah, and the Apostle James. That worship is the way out of these things. The psalm unfolds in two sections. We could really look at it and say the psalm unfolds in three sections, but I always do three, so let's just do two this morning. So two Two main ideas uh, as we move through. The first is this, the wisdom of a God-centered people. The wisdom of a God-centered people. 
So Psalm 92, it has some of the features of what is sometimes called a wisdom psalm. So there are different genres within the psalms. There are lament psalms, and there are wisdom psalms, and a number of others, royal psalms, and so forth. But then there are other psalms that have certain features of many of them, and this psalm in particular has some of the wisdom psalm features. So For example, in a lot of wisdom literature and in wisdom psalms, you have these striking contrasts between one life and another life. So in verse, you got two kinds of people in this psalm. In verse 11, the evil. In verse 12, the righteous. That's it. It just lays out the world. It carves one line in the middle of the world, and it puts the righteous on one side and the evil on the other. Two destinies. In verse 9, the evil are scattered. In verse 12, the righteous thrive and flourish like palm trees, right? So the other thing about wisdom psalms is they, um, they feel like they're, like they're inviting you somewhere. Like they're saying, come with me if you want to live. Come with me into flourishing. Come with me into the good life. This is where the good life is. Follow me. And if you want to take the first step, step on the path toward the good life, where do you start? Verse one. Step one. It is good to give thanks to the Lord. If you're taking notes, here's the point. We worship God and give him thanks. This is a God-centered life. We worship God and give him thanks. Thanksgiving is one of the most formative habits for the Christian life. I would encourage you to study the theme of thanksgiving in scripture and look how large that theme is in God's word. Gratitude toward God, which is right in verse one, gratitude toward God is not just going to happen to us. You sing your heart towards gratefulness in God. You're not waiting for this to passively pull you in. You're singing in the direction of a thankful heart. The singing itself is formative. The saying of it is formative. That's why when we teach our littles uh, to say thank you. you, you hand them something, even when they're a baby, and you say, what do you say? And they say, gagu, you know, which is thank you, right? It's gonna work for now. Uh, but we teach them to say thank you. Why? Because, because we want them to have good manners? No, but because we want their eyes to be open to the awareness that I just received something. And, and there's this liturgy that goes on. Every time something is given to me, I say thank you. I'm noticing something's being given to me. Verse one, it's good to give thanks to the Lord. Look at verse two. It's good to give thanks to the Lord to declare your faithful love in the morning and your faithfulness at night. So it's a daily, it's a habit formation that this psalm is holding out. You want to walk toward the good life? Develop this regular morning and evening, you are faithful. Morning and evening, I am thankful. The psalmist adds, preferably do this with a 10-string harp. (laughs) Do this with the music of of a lyre. So if you've ever, let me just say this because I'm not gonna be in the neighborhood of a verse like this maybe for a long time. If you've ever felt the impulse to learn a musical instrument for the sake of your personal worship, I wanna just joyfully affirm that impulse. Learn an instrument. The psalmist is right there in verse three and he's saying, declare his faithfulness, use this. Here's a, well, you're not going to find one of the supply chain issues for finding a a 10-string instrument like this, right? But he's saying, declare his faithful love in this way. So so I'm going to do something that I don't normally do. So here's, I'm going to invite you into a regular time of sermon prep 
for me. So when I'm studying for my sermon uh, on Saturday, I'm at home and my desk is three feet from the keyboard. So I'm kind of weaving in and out of worship and study. And so yesterday, as I'm thinking about this text, and I wheel my chair from the desk over to the keyboard, and was thinking, all right, so what are the first three verses? What's the theme of the first three verses? It's declare his faithful love. So I just turned the keyboard on and just began playing a song that'll be familiar to many of us. Just sing it with me, the chorus. All my life you have been faithful. All my life you have been so, so good. With every breath that I am able, I will sing of the goodness of God. Let's sing it again. All my life you have been faithful. All my life you have been so, so good. With every breath that I am able, I will sing of the goodness of God. I will sing of the goodness of God. So the psalmist is saying, something happens when we sing our thankfulness to God. When we sing his faithful love in the morning and in the evening, ancient wisdom says this is formative for our lives. We don't just sing from thanksgiving, we sing for it. We don't just sing from joy, we sing for joy. Now, you might be thinking, all right, so you sit down at your keyboard, you wheel over three feet from the desk over to the keyboard, it must be nice, right? Uh, I don't know how to play the piano. Uh, I don't know how to play that song. And I was even thinking yesterday, man, I wish I could get five minutes with every person in this room, because I could teach you in 10 minutes how to play that song. It would be different. It wouldn't have arpeggiating weirdness and stuff like that. It would be different. It would be simple. But I could teach everybody in this room in 10 minutes how to play the chorus of that song. And this is the really strange part. I'm going to do that tonight on Instagram. I'm going to create a tutorial for our entire church. So you, you can follow me today, Matt Mason, 75. That's not like a plug. Unfollow me tomorrow. That's fine. But you can follow me tonight, and I'm going to make a tutorial, and I'm going to teach you how to play the piano. The easy thing about doing this on the piano that's different from the guitar, so this is me asserting the superiority of pianos, right? So Daniel's going to haze on me later, is if you can do the claw hand, if you can do this shape right here, you will play the chorus of that song soon. Uh, maybe tonight. <laughs> I don't want to overpromise, but soon. All right, so let's learn it together. It's going to be late. I've got to take a trip to Chattanooga and be back uh, this afternoon. But tonight, I'm hoping to post something so we can all start learning to go sit down at a keyboard. And if you say, I don't have a piano, I can't help you with that. All right, so, but uh, 
But yeah, so I stumbled onto a children's book this week, and it's called Tiny Truths, Wonder and Wisdom, Everyday Reminders from Psalms and Proverbs. And I read the description, and it made me buy the book instantly. The description is, it's a collection of bite-sized readings that teach children how to live a life of love and gratitude, make good choices, and ask honest questions. It's like... I can't wait to, I'm not a child, but I cannot wait to read this book. So last night, I'm just thumbing through this like kid's book with all these little bitty kid's pictures. And here's one of the things that it said next to the Psalms. The more we tell God what is in our hearts, ask him questions and thank him for all he has given us, the more we find that sense of wonder as we grow to understand who he is and how much he loves us. Friends, a God-centered life begins here. You know, it, it shouldn't surprise us that it's possible to read the best, most God-centered books and be a total grouch. It, that shouldn't surprise us. And, and the reason is because God-centered books, helpful as they may be, God-centered books aren't as formative as you praying. This psalm is saying, you, Put these words in your mouth and point them to God. God, you've been faithful. God, you've been so, so good. And the psalmist says, say it in the morning. Say it in the evening and watch what starts firing in your life. Why do we give thanks? And now the psalmist is going to start furnishing motivation. A God-centered life is to worship God and give him thanks. And second, we praise God's works and trust his purposes. We praise God's works and trust his purposes. Look at verse four with me. Four, there's the purpose. Here's the motivation. Why should we do this? Because you've made me rejoice, Lord, by what you have done. And then he says it again in slightly different words. I will shout for joy because of the works of your hands. So, that begs the question, what works of his hands are creating joy in the life of the psalmist? Is it God's works of creation? We've got a lot of options. God is, God is at work in so many areas of the world, right? So is it God's works of creation? Is it the wonders that we see in the world that God has made? Is that what the psalmist is talking about? Yes. Is it God's works of providence? So providence meaning God's individual care for us, where he involves himself even in the most mundane details of our lives. Do we praise him for his works of providence? The psalmist would say, yes, go for it. He's not limiting anything. Or do we praise him for his works of redemption? Is the psalmist inviting us in light of things that we would learn later in the New Testament to sing about how the Father chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him and that he predestined us to be adopted as sons through Jesus Christ for himself, or, or that, as we read in Colossians chapter one, that God has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And the psalmist just says, all of that, go for it. Sing all of that. That's your thanks for the works his hands have done. His handiwork in creation, his handiwork of providence, his handiwork of redemption. We have source material for days for the praise of God to lift us out of joylessness. This world is ringing with reasons for worship. 
What will you notice this week? You're gonna open your eyes in the world and look for reasons to give him praise? How are you going to gladden your heart in God by opening your eyes to the works of his hands? You know, then this psalm gets edgy because wisdom psalms often roll like that. This psalm gets edgy in verse six. Uh, A stupid person does not know. A fool does not understand this. Um, Has nothing to do, this language, edgy as it is, has nothing to do with intellectual ability, academic prowess, it has nothing to do with that. The word fool in the Bible is reserved for those who deny the existence of God by the way they live. It's the person who lives like God is not there. Or the person who lives like maybe God is there but he's a pushover. Or lives like God is there but I don't really respect him. And furthermore, the fool in Scripture, you study that term and how it's used, particularly in the book of Proverbs, the fool in Scripture is the person who can't see beneath the surface of things. They look at the life of someone who's successful but ignoring God, and they say, I'll have what they're having. They look like they're on top of the world. They look like they are happy and flourishing, but they're living a God-denying life. And Scripture says the fool can't see through the outward appearance of what looks like flourishing but really isn't. Verse 7 Though the wicked sprout like grass and all evildoers flourish, they will be eternally destroyed. What wisdom sayings in the Bible, like what we have here, they often distinguish between the way things appear now and the way things finally turn out in the end. It's pointing you down the road. It's saying, hey, hey, peek around the corner. You couldn't see this, but I'm gonna show you what it looks like if you peek around the corner. Verse seven, again, they sprout like grass today, and it's like the psalmist is saying, don't blink. Don't blink. They look like they're flourishing today. They're chiefs for a day, chaff tomorrow. Really, in that way, it sounds a lot like Psalm 1. It may look like the wicked sprout like grass. It may look like they're flourishing, but this psalm urges us things are not always as they appear. Sin never pays. Well, it does pay a wage, but you don't want it, right? there's There's the warning label that this psalm comes with. It says, you want a life of wisdom? Let me tell you how not to walk in a path of wisdom. Though the wicked sprout like grass and evildoers seem like they're flourishing is the point, they are doomed to destruction forever. It has a promise and has a warning. This psalm is inviting you, come and live the prophet Ezekiel asked this haunting question that rings out in the pages of the Old Testament and he says to rebellious Israel, why will you die, O house of Israel? Why would you choose that option when you can live? Why die when life is on the table, right? Jesus says that in John chapter 10. I came that you might have life and that more abundantly. This, the enemy comes to steal and kill and destroy. Which one do you want? I mean, this is a no-brainer. Why would you die when you can come alive? You want forgiveness this morning? You can have it. Trust in Jesus Christ who died on the cross to provide forgiveness for all who repent and believe. You want life? Follow Jesus You want joy that sticks, hope that lasts, cling to Jesus. It's where it is. This is wisdom. The wisdom of a God-centered people and secondly, the future of a God-centered people. The future of a God-centered people. Now verse eight is the 
literal center of this poem. And it's placed at the center on purpose. There are seven verses before it. There are seven verses after it. A God-centered life grows out of the awareness that is right there in the middle of this text. But you, O Lord, are exalted forever. Church, that is the deepest storyline in history. That one statement is where history is headed. All people, all creatures of our God and King, all powers, all principalities, all rulers, all demons, everything in heaven and on earth and under the earth will on the last day acknowledge Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Translation, verse eight is true. He, the Lord, is exalted and that forever. The high point of the psalm is the high point of world history. What's the future of God-centered people? We know who wins. The Lord and those who trust in him. In the 1640s, when the Westminster Catechism was being written, uh, they were asking a series of questions to help people understand their Bibles. And they started to unpack the redemptive offices of Jesus Christ. How is Christ a prophet? How is Christ a priest? How is Christ a king? And they were using scripture in so many ways to give brief, memorable answers to this so people could understand biblical theology. And when they asked the question, how is Christ a king? The Westminster authors wrote these words, Christ is a king by bringing us under his power and he rules and defends us and he restrains and conquers all of his and our enemies. That's how Christ is a king. He conquers and his conquering brings us into triumph as well. Look at verse nine. For indeed, Lord, your enemies, indeed your enemies will perish. All evildoers will be scattered. And this follows right from verse eight. If Yahweh, the Lord, is the supreme and sovereign God. To oppose him is utterly futile. It can't possibly succeed. He's on top. He is supreme. He's in charge. The enemies here, they're evildoers, right? It's the word for lawless. It's those who reject God's authority. What does the future hold for those who oppose the Lord? All evildoers, the psalmist says, will be scattered. You know, you read through the Old Testament and the New Testament, but you read through the Bible and you find out God has options. And when it comes to judgment, God has multiple different kinds of levers that he can pull. And one of his go-tos is scattering. And this dates all the way back to the Tower of Babel. They're building this massive complex to, as a tribute to the glory of man in opposition to God and they're saying, look, it's happening. We're building a stairway all the way to heaven and God pulls the scattering lever <laughs> and they're dispersed and confused. One of the prayers of Israel when they were desperate and their back was against the wall was, let God arise and his enemies be scattered. Disperse your enemies. God wins because God rules. He wins because he's sovereign. Now, let's just clarify and stop here for a second while we're in the neighborhood. That, that doesn't mean that, that the church or that believers are always on top in the present age. 
to claim that the church must always be seen, must always be seen as winning, always be seen as on top is a form of the prosperity gospel. And we reject that because the Bible rejects that idea. Jesus didn't promise increasing health and wealth to all who follow him. Jesus didn't promise that the church would always have a seat at the tables of power and influence in every given culture in history. No, he promised that the powers of hell can't destroy the people of God, can't undo the kingdom of God. The language of triumph in the New Testament is both counterintuitive and subversive. You read Romans 8, for example, and it says, we are like sheep being given over to slaughter and we are more than conquerors. And it's like, you can't be both. It's a slaughtered conqueror makes no sense unless it's a counterintuitive story, a subversive story. In other words, the deeper language of triumph in the Bible is riddled with defiant hope. And it says to the church of all ages, all over the world, it says they might take your house, but they can't take your refuge. They might take the building, but they can't take our worship. We know the end of the story, and that has a way of pulling us out of joylessness. It has a way of pulling us out of foolishness and into a clear-eyed understanding of where the good life is. Next point is this. We know where we flourish, planted in God's house. And this psalm, yeah, it comes with a warning label, but the end note of this psalm is not heavy. It is filled with hope. And this is where the psalm that has spoken to joyless people and to foolish people, it finishes by giving a song to hopeless people. Look at verse 10. You have lifted up my horn like that of a wild ox. It's a symbol of victory. I have been anointed with the finest oil. My eyes look at my enemies. When evildoers rise against me, my ears hear them. The righteous, look at this, thrive like a palm tree and grow like a cedar tree in Lebanon. Planted in the house of the Lord. This is the future of all believers. They thrive in the courts of our God. They will still bear fruit in old age, healthy and green, or one translation says, full of sap and green. To declare the Lord is just, He is my rock and there is no unrighteousness in him. It's a kind of Old Testament rendition of Philippians 1.6. I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it at the day of Christ Jesus. And in this way, friend, notice this God-centered psalm finishes right where it began. Verse two, God you've been faithful. In verses 12 through 15, God, you will be faithful. You were faithful to save, and we will sing in verse two. You will be faithful to keep us, and we will sing. This psalm, if you will, it fast forwards through a God-centered life. So the one who's praising God in the opening verses, by the time you get to the end of the psalm, is old in verses 12 through 15, you look at the descriptions of this old man, this old woman, and things are not as they appear. Because they might be old in age, but you see the language? She's flourishing like a palm tree. She's growing like a cedar in Lebanon. Apparently, if you wanted cedar in the ancient world, Lebanon was the place to get it. It was the best cedar the world had. Psalm 29, when it's talking about the power of God, it says he can splinter even the cedars of Lebanon. Even Lebanon's cedars can be splintered by the voice of God, it was the strongest cedars in the world and it says, look at her, that old believer, she's a cedar, she's a palm tree. 
early on. Why? Why did she grow in that way? Early on, verse 13, she was planted in the house of the Lord and she hasn't withered. No, in fact, she is flourishing in the courts of our God. And you see how we're becoming clear-eyed through this wisdom psalm. For a minute there, it looked like the wicked were flourishing, but they weren't. And at various times, it may have looked as though the righteous were not, but they were. Friends, we know who wins. We know where we flourish. And finally, our word to the world, he is our rock. This is old believer in verse 14. He's bearing fruit in old age, full of sap and green, and he has a story to tell in verse 15. He's declaring what? That the Lord is upright, he is my rock, and there is no unrighteousness in him. What's he saying? He's, he's testifying. He's telling a story. He's saying, you'll never regret living your life praising, trusting, and obeying God. God-centered life naturally flows out in, in what? In God-centered mission. That's what's going on here. We've been delivered by grace in order to declare his grace. That's what's happening. That's the dynamic at play at the end of this Text, you want to testify this week? Tell someone in your own way, Jesus Christ is my rock. We do this, even in our homes, we do this. We're saying to our kids, these words, there's no unrighteousness in God, kids. He's the safest place in the world. For everybody who's broken, he's the safest place in the world. Those who have experienced injustice love these words. The Lord is just, he is upright. For some people, there's no consolation better than hearing and knowing. God is just, he's upright. He never does the wrong thing. People often do. God never does the wrong thing. He's always just. You can always trust him. He never lies. There's no unrighteousness in him. He's good to the bone. And so we have these formative words, and why are they here? To lift us from three seasons, joylessness, maybe that's where you're at, foolishness, maybe that's where you're at, hopelessness, maybe that's where you're at. We've been made brand new in Christ. Don't let your walk with God grow stale. Renew it daily. This psalm is inviting you, follow me, renew it. Say thank you in the morning. Say thank you in the evening. It'll create something. It'll create something that the Bible calls perseverance. And then you're gonna have a hard day because it's gonna keep coming, right? Hard days will keep coming. You're gonna have a hard day and you're gonna feel yourself tempted to close God out and joy's gonna stick its foot in the door. It's kind of what this, this picture is, right? It's gonna invite you, don't go there. Come with me. Come into wisdom. Step this way. Psalm 92 says, when you can't sing from joy, sing for joy. 